For those who don't know me, my name's Raymond, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Uh, we're, we're actually doing a series right now. Usually on Sunday mornings, we'll just kind of open up a book of the Bible, go through it, see what it says, try to understand it, exp- try to apply it to our lives. And, and we're doing something a little bit different right now. We're actually doing a citywide sort of campaign called Explore God. This is the second week of that campaign. So last week, we actually took a look at the question, does life have a purpose? And this week, we're going to be looking at the question, is there a God? All right, so that's where we'll be this week. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Now, I am, I am actually going to begin by reminding you of a story Jesus told once. This was in Luke chapter 15. You don't have to turn there. But Jesus actually told this story. He was in mixed company. And he said, which one of you, if you have a hundred sheep and you lose one of them, won't leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one sheep that was lost until he finds it? And then he said, when he finds that sheep, he throws it on his shoulders and he rejoices and he goes back and he tells everybody else, hey, come rejoice with me for my sheep that was lost has been found. And then at the end, he told them in the same way, there's actually more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, that is, who who turns back to the truth, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so this morning for me will be a little bit different. Usually, again, we'll just open up the Bible, explain it, apply it. If you feel this morning like I am leaving you behind and talking about things like science and philosophy and statistics and a million other things you don't care about at all, I want you to keep something in mind. I'm actually going after the one. I'm going after the one this morning that will have extreme difficulty believing that the claims of Christianity are true if he or she can't first be persuaded that those claims are reasonable. All right, so I'm going to spend a lot of time to go down that path. So pray with me as I go. I'm going to pray now, and then I'll read Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, Heavenly Father, I, I, feel, I feel inadequate to, to sit here and talk about whether or not you exist. Um, and to do that, to do that in, in like 30 minutes, I, I don't, I mean, I need help. So please help me to be clear. Help me to be helpful to those that you've gathered here this morning. And I pray if anyone walked in this morning um, having that particular hurdle between them and you, where they just, they don't believe you exist, I just pray that something said today will help to clear that up for them, and they'd be able to take the next step of not simply believing you exist, but, but actually understanding that you desire to have a right relationship with us, and that your son Jesus is the key to all of that. We ask that in your name, amen. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. 
Add to that Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, which says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Not just with his mouth, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. It is possible for you to profess Christianity with your mouth and to, at the level of your heart, be a practical atheist. The fool says in his heart that there is no God and he just lives accordingly. Now, here's what I want to do. My task is to answer one question, is there a God? But if you know me, I like to answer at least three questions, right? So we're going to add two more to that. So here's, here's what they'll be. Number one, is there a God? Number two, how can we know? And finally, number three, why do so many people still doubt or altogether deny the existence of God? All right, let's take them one at a time. First, is there a God? Yes. Second, how can we know? Well, we can know by what God reveals to us in the scripture, and for some of us, that suffices. The Bible says it, I believe it. The Bible's a credible source regarding the truth that it teaches and affirms, so I need no further evidence, I need no further plea, but for many of us, we need a little bit more than that to even start the conversation and to make us consider whether or not we can know that God exists. So let's, let's begin to look at this passage in Romans chapter one and look at something it says. The Apostle Paul who wrote this back in the first century AD, tells us there that we can know certain things about God. He says what can be known about God is plain to people because God has shown it to them, not just in a book like the Bible, but he has shown it to them in the things that have been made. You see that in Romans chapter one, verse 19. In the things that have been made, God has revealed truth about himself. So what I want to do this morning is to look at some of the things God has made so that we can see some truth that we all need to be able to see so that we can relate to God rightly for the rest of our lives. Now, first I want to take a look at something that is true, just kind of logically you can understand it, and move on to human beings, then to the earth, and then to the universe beyond us. Now, look up at this stack of books. It's only two, so it's very simple. But it, it has shape, it has design, you see that? And it's got information on it. When you walked in this morning, you saw chairs in neat rows, some neater than others, but you saw chairs in neat rows. And you looked at that, and you probably didn't go through the process of thinking this, but if you looked at those chairs neatly in rows, and you said, I, I think that there's probably somebody or some group of people who put these chairs out this way. Right? If you reason that way, then we would, you would be what we call normal. If you thought that these chairs just kind of arranged themselves because some random wind came through that door or that door, and you, you, you kind of concluded that no intelligent mind was behind this arrangement, this order, this design, then you would, well, you know, we're in church, so we wouldn't say what we're thinking, but you, you understand we would not put you in the normal category, yes? You would not be a clear thinker. This book, as I mentioned earlier, this book has some design. It has meaningful information in it, especially this book. It's a Bible. It has a lot of meaningful information, right? And it's, it's put into a space that's not, not huge, but it's, it's kind of small. Now, think about this. If you were to look at me and tell me that you think this book is the result of a print shop exploding and then random processes putting it together, again, we would put you on the side of things that is not quite normal. If you concluded that there was an intelligent mind behind this, we would say that you're thinking clearly. Suppose we were walking down a beach, 
We're, we're walking on the shore of the beach and we come across a shape that looks like a heart. And you look at it and it looks like it was drawn maybe with a stick or something about the width of a finger. And it's clearly a heart. Would you think that random wind and random waves converged on that spot and created what you were seeing? Or would you conclude that an intelligent mind is behind what you're witnessing? What if we went one step further and said you didn't just see a heart, you didn't just see a recognizable shape or design, but there was actually an arrow through it and on the side it says Raymond loves Heather. If you saw that kind of design, that kind of order with meaningful information, with a message, would you look at that and conclude that it was a random set of processes over a long time that created it? Or would you conclude that there was an intelligent mind behind what you're seeing? You see, a hundred times out of a hundred, when we see design, even simple design like that, simple order with meaningful information, we understand immediately that it points us to an intelligent mind behind what we are witnessing. Everybody understands that. What we're trying to do now is we're trying to look at people and we're trying to say that all of a sudden, when it comes to the human being, when it comes to life as we observe it in this world, when it comes to other things that God has made, that all of a sudden, these things are just the result of random processes that have been unaided by any intelligent mind. Here's what we now know, and this is why it's becoming more and more of a problem to say that there is no God. Now, I certainly can't prove to you beyond a possible doubt this morning that God exists because you, you, you can doubt anything, right? Philosophers will tell you, you can sit here and doubt your own existence. So I can't prove to you beyond a possible doubt that God exists. But here's what I think we can do if we're honest. I think we can demonstrate that it is more reasonable to conclude that God exists than to conclude that he does not. And that's what I'm hoping for this morning. If you look at the human being, we now know this through scientific, and it's going to get deeply scientific and philosophical here. But we now know that in one cell, in one cell there is something that called that call, call DNA, we now know that there is over three billion chemical and genetic bits of information in one cell in your body. We have mapped the entire human genome within the last 20 years, and we now know that there are over three billion chemical bits of information in one cell in your body. Your body is composed of some 37.2 trillion cells. If you were to take all of the meaningful information in your body, one, one mathematician said if you were to string it as a straight line, one chemical bit of information next to the other, there would be enough meaningful information in your body to go from here to the moon and back 150,000 times. Now, have you ever seen little kids write our little Julia made a card for us this week. Have you ever seen, you, you see how big they write? You know what I mean? And, and they're, they're kind of spelling a word and they don't know how long the word is going to be so they just kind of end at this part and start back up on the next line. You, you guys know what I'm talking. It's the cutest thing in the world, but it's so hard to read. <laughs> see, the, the, here's the thing. With little kids, they don't yet have the, the developed intelligence and the tactile skill and the mastery of themselves to to get a lot of meaningful information into a small space. It takes more mastery, more developed intellect, a, a, a vastly more intelligent mind to get meaningful information to a really small space. Now consider this. 
three billion plus bits of meaningful information in your body in a space so small it cannot be seen with the eye. That is what the most intelligent people in our world today are telling you is the result of mindless random processes. There's no intelligence behind that. Whatever else that is, it is not a scientific nor is it a reasonable conclusion. And you ought to be comfortable with it. it, it is not, I'm, a, I'm a trained chemist. It is not a scientific conclusion. It is not a reasonable conclusion. That last statement I can make just because I'm a human being and I'm able to reason. Right, so we have to start looking at these things and understanding what's at play. Let's move beyond the human being and go to the earth. There are so many things about the earth that we're discovering now through scientific methods. We know that the earth tilts on its axis at an angle of 23 degrees. We're told by astrophysicists, any change in that angle, one way or the other, life here would be unsustainable. We know that the sun is some, 30, some 93 million miles away from the earth. Anything closer, we burn up, Anything further away, we freeze and life is unsustainable. We know that Jupiter has to be exactly where it is in relationship to the Earth and everything else in the atmosphere. Did you know that Jupiter, because of its gravitational attractional force, actually serves as an air filter and a vacuum cleaner for the Earth? We would be bombarded by asteroids and other, and other uh, material in space and life here would be unsustainable if Jupiter was not exactly where it was, wasn't the size that it was, and didn't have the gravitational attractional force that it does. God has thought of everything. He has thought of absolutely everything. And one thing that blew me away this week as I was, I was looking at all of this is the fact that, that the distance between any two stars in our galaxy is, is just the right word is astronomical, <laughs> it's not, but it really is, it really is. Do you know what the average distance is between any two stars in our galaxy? 30 trillion miles, 30 trillion miles. Let me, let me put that in perspective for you. If, if, the, the fastest vehicle any human being has ever no, been known to travel in is, is, well, not your car. I've seen some of you drive, I mean, you drive pretty fast, but it's not your car. The fastest vehicle any human being has ever traveled in is a space shuttle and lived to tell the tale, right? A space shuttle, when it's in full orbit, is traveling at a pace of about 17,000 miles per hour. If you do the math, that's five miles per second. Very, very fast. Faster than you drive when you're happy, right? So it's going at 17,000 miles per hour. Now, let me, if you were traveling from our sun to the next star in our galaxy at that pace, 17,000 miles per hour, it would take you over 200,000 years to reach the next star. <laughs> this is why the Bible in Psalm chapter eight, verse three says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I mean, with all of that vast expanse, who are we? What are we that we would be considered significant and that we would be privileged to know God and to bear the image of God? And how absurd is it? Think about this now. How absurd is it, given the fact that our sun is one star in a galaxy that is known to now have at least 100 billion stars, some smaller, some bigger. We now know through observation from the Hubble telescope that is 600 kilometers above the surface of the earth taking pictures of galaxies, we now know 
that, that our galaxy is simply one of many. That by, by, by most conservative estimates, there are at least another 100 billion galaxies, which themselves contain perhaps another 100 billion stars. So our sun is one star in a galaxy of 100 billion plus stars, which itself is one of 100 billion plus galaxies. We are a speck of dust on a slightly larger speck of dust called the Earth, orbiting around one star called the sun in that vast of a universe. And every once in a while, one of these specks of dust does the audacious, insane thing of opening a very small part of its body to say that there is no God. Again, ladies and gentlemen, that is not a reasonable statement. It is not a scientific statement. It's not even a reasonable statement. It's absurd. But many people believe exactly that. The information coming out of the scientific community over just the last century is making it harder and harder to maintain the atheist position. In fact, you, and I won't go through all of this, but you can pick up a book on your own called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's written by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek, and in it they discuss a helpful acronym to understand some of the, the most recent scientific discoveries that are showing us beyond what, what, what someone called the shadow of a doubt that the universe indeed had a beginning. The acronym is the acronym SURGE, S-U-R-G-E, and I won't go through all of it, but that stands for S, the second law of thermodynamics, U, the universe, and the fact that it's expanding as witnessed by Edwin Hubble in 1927 out in California through the, through the telescope he was using at the time. He actually observed galaxies moving away from us, and he knew that because of the light patterns that were coming from those galaxies, what astronomers would call a red shift. So, so the universe is expanding and galaxies are moving away from us. The R in surge stands for radiation. There is remnant radiation or heat energy that is still out there from the initial event that released all this energy when the universe exploded into being from absolutely nothing. And that energy was discovered accidentally by two scientists called Penzias and Wilson back in 1965 in New Jersey of all places. They later won a Nobel Prize for their work in 1978. And then astrophysicists and other theorists began to say, well, if that remnant energy is there, we should actually, since the universe is expanding, we should be able to detect some variations, slight variations in temperature in that remnant heat that would allow galaxies to form on the basis of gravitational attraction even as the universe was expanding. And so they began to look for the G in surge, which were these galaxy seeds, the seeds of what would allow galaxies to form. And lo and behold, they, find, they found those not too long after Penzias and Wilson discovered this in 1965. Just a few decades later, in 1989, NASA released a, a, a satellite, a $200 million satellite that you all paid for, or your parents paid for it, but a $200 million satellite called COBE, all right? And COBE is short for, what is that? Something about background, or here it is, Cosmic Background Explorer. So they released COBE, and eventually they found exactly what they were looking for. In fact, in 1992, just three years after they released this satellite into the atmosphere, the project leader named George Smoot announced that they've actually found these variations in temperature. And he said, quote, if you're religious, it's like looking at God. Stephen Hawking, renowned atheist, 
um, astrophysicists, theoretical physicists out in, in Cambridge over there, generally considered by many to be the smartest man still alive. Uh, he, he's been living for over 40 years with ALS, by the way, which itself is a miracle. That doesn't happen. But it seems that God is giving him a lot of time. Lord, please save Stephen Hawking. So Stephen Hawking, still alive, he actually looked at this and he said, man, this thing, this G in surge is, quote, the most important discovery of the century, if not all time. The E in surge stands for Einstein's theory of relativity. Again, that's, I'm not smart enough to even understand that. I learned it in school, but I never quite learned it. You know what I mean? I never quite understood what it means. But uh, all, all, it really need, all you need to know today is that time, space, and matter are all kind of interdependent. And you couldn't really have one without the other in the universe as we know it. They all had to come into existence at the same time. All of these things, S-U-R-G-E, point to the reality that the universe had a beginning. Why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Everyone understands that if, if something has a beginning, then that thing can also point to something or someone else that caused it to exist. Prior to these discoveries, atheistic scientists used to comfort themselves with the idea that the universe was simply self-caused, eternally existing, that it was in fact the uncaused first cause for everything else in existence. They can no longer do that. Science at its most basic level is the study of causes. What has caused the thing that we are observing or experiencing? So when science is operating as true science and when it's operating honestly, when it discovers something, it then has to ask the question, what caused that? We are now at a time and a place where science has to look at the entire universe and ask the question, what caused that? Now, Christians have been trying to tell people for years that it's God. They don't like that. They call it a God of the gaps theory. Oh, you just have a gap in your information and you put God there. Well, I tell them all the time, well, you have a universe of the gaps theory. You just stick the universe in that place. And now you know through your own methods that that doesn't work. My answer still works. And we have your methods to thank for proving it. Listen to what some of the most the most expert scientists in all these fields, astronomy, astrophysicists, let, listen to what they said. Arno Penzias, who helped to discover this R, this radiant energy in 1965, said this, quote, astronomy, and he's, he's an agnostic, by the way, was an agnostic, quote, astronomy leads us to a very unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, the observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, in fact, one might even say supernatural plan. Not only Arno Penzias, but there's a gentleman by the name of Robert Jastrow. Now, he died on February 8th of 2008, but Robert Jastrow, up until the point of his death, occupied the chair of the, the renowned Edwin Hubble, the guy who actually observed the U in surge, that the galaxies were moving away from us at a speed that corresponded to their distances and concluded that the universe must be expanding on the basis of that evidence. Robert Jastrow, who was the chair at the Wilson Observatory in California, said this, quote, and again, he, he goes into great detail in his book, God and the Astronomers, about the fact that he is an agnostic. He was an agnostic, as far as we can know, up to the point of his death. He, he, he had no religious bone to pick. He, he was just, 
He's just calling it as he sees it. And Robert Jastrow said this, quote, astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in the cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all of this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone else would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. We could go on, we could go on. In fact, Richard Dawkins, known atheist in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, Richard Dawkins, uh, again, he's the kind of atheist that tries to convert other people to atheism. Uh, one of the most outspoken voices for the atheist camp. He's uh, still teaching at Oxford, I believe. Richard Dawkins says that biology is the study of complicated things that, now listen to this, that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Even Richard Dawkins has to be honest enough to say it gives the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Lord, save Richard Dawkins. He still has time. Save Richard Dawkins. Help him to go further than that. Now, all of this is how we can come to know. We can know simply because the Bible tells us like the old song. How do you know Jesus loves you? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so, and that's good enough. But for some people, we can also know God's, God's gone out of his way to help us know that he exists. He's gone beyond the Bible tells us so, and he's made this entire world and all the things that we have made point us to the reality that he exists and that he actually cares for us as well. Now, here's the final question, then why do so many people still doubt God's existence? Why? Look at John chapter three. This is Jesus speaking. We're kind of out of the woods now. John chapter three, let's just listen to Jesus, the son of God, explain to us why people tend to avoid the reality of God and acknowledging that he exists. It isn't what we know. It isn't what we don't know. That's not why we avoid God. Listen to what Jesus says. John chapter three, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light, referring to himself, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. It isn't what we know that keeps us away from God. It isn't what we know that keeps us away from embracing the truth that he exists and all the implications that follow. It's what we love. Jesus says here, light has come into the world. People, though, loved darkness. We love what we are able to do in the dark. We love the idea that God doesn't exist. We will avoid Jesus. We'll talk about statistics and science and philosophy and, and all these other things all day if it means that we can use that as a way of avoiding Jesus and coming face to face with him. Because in Jesus, there is just too much light. That light exposes who we really are. And we fear that that light has something negative to say about us. We love the idea of ourselves being these great, wonderful people and we're afraid that this light is going to expose that we are actually evil. We love pleasure so much. We love sexual pleasure so much. 
that will actually risk our lives to get it. We love the pleasure of autonomy, absolute autonomy so much. We will do anything we can to hold on to the idea that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want, without any hope of reprisal, without any fear of reprisal, without anyone of authority coming to us and saying, that's not right, you shouldn't be doing that. In fact, those two loves, those two pleasures, we, we love those so much that if you put those two together, I can't think of anything that has destroyed more human families than those two pleasures and the pursuit of them at all costs. And God is, is sitting here speaking to us, trying to turn us to the truth so that he might save us from all of the things that we seem to rush into. What causes us to avoid the truth of who God is and that he exists? It's not what we know. It's that we love the wrong things and we so get Jesus wrong. We think that he's coming to take away what we love the most. No, he's coming to change your heart so that you'll love different things more, so that you'll love him more than those other things. And at that point, as he changes the heart, you'll gladly let go of some of those things that once enslaved you, the passions and the pleasures that led you in the wrong direction all your life. Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World, said this about why he accepts the idea that there's no God and that therefore the whole world is meaningless. Listen to the candor and the honesty of Aldous Huxley. This is actually from his book called Ends and Means, written in 1937. He says, quote, For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We objected to the political and economic system because it was unjust. The supporters of these systems claimed that in some way they embodied the meaning, a Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotical revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. The conclusion that the world lacked a God behind it, that it therefore lacked any meaning, and that therefore we could do whatever we wanted, was not something Aldous Huxley, his contemporaries, or his predecessors found convincing. It was something they found convenient. It's still the same today. We now know, not only through theology, not only through tradition, but through modern science, that the universe is not the uncaused first cause of everything else. Something else is, and we still maintain that that something else is much more than that, but is at least that. That something else is God. The God who created the world. Now, let me, let me begin to close here. Let me read you a quote from that that atheist I mentioned earlier, Richard Dawkins. In 2006, just 10 years ago, Time Magazine had a debate between Richard Dawkins and Francis Collins. Francis Collins is the geneticist who led a team of over 2,400 scientists who eventually succeeded in mapping the entire human genome as we mentioned earlier. Francis Collins is a very good scientist, all right? He also happens to be a Christian. He converted from atheism to faith in Jesus at the age of 27, largely due to what he was learning as a geneticist. So the idea that the more you learn about these things, the more you move away from faith in God is not true. And it certainly wasn't true for Francis Collins. 
At the end of the debate with this atheist Richard Dawkins, Francis Collins made his closing statement, and then it was Dawkins' turn to speak, and this is what he said, quote, When we started out and we were talking about the origins of the universe and the physical constants, I provided what I thought were cogent arguments against a supernatural intelligent designer. But it does seem to me to be a worthy idea. Refutable, but nevertheless grand enough and big enough to be worthy of respect. Listen closely. I don't see Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on the cross as worthy of that grandeur. They strike me as parochial. If there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian of any religion has ever proposed. Jesus coming down, dying on a cross, that being the answer, that being the way God reveals himself to... Foolishness, nonsense, no way. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in God's wisdom the world did not come to know God through its wisdom, it pleased God to save those who believe through the foolishness of what we preach. God gave us a very simple message to do what nothing else will be able to do. For those who demand signs and these miraculous displays of angels coming down or anything like that to say, if you'll just send me a messenger, send me an angel, do this, prove to me that God exists, then I'll believe. Jews demand signs, but we preach Christ crucified, verse 23 says. 1 Corinthians 1.23. Greeks, philosophers, these guys, they demand wisdom. Give me an airtight, logical Logical uh, argument that I can follow from premise to premise to conclusion and, and, and set it before me, and then I'll believe. No, no, no. Are you still looking for that kind of wisdom? We preach Christ crucified. The very power and wisdom of God. More wisdom than anything you're looking for. More power than any sign you're looking for. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach Christ crucified to you. And I'm going to trust what God does through it. God created every single one of us. He created the world in which we live. And it was good when he created it. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. And the thing that messed that up is called sin. Our first human representatives rebelled against God. They sinned against him. And their sin wasn't just a bad thing that put some negative stroke in a ledger column of morality that God is keeping somewhere. Their sin infected them. And like a virus, it worked itself through the entire human race. It infected all of us as well. We come into the world with the seeds of this rebellion in our heart and alive. And we naturally move without God's intervening help in the direction that, the, that is the direction of rebellion against God. God loved us too much to leave us in that state. He actually enacted a plan that he had set aside from before the creation of the world. And that plan included sending his perfect son, Jesus Christ, into this world as our representative and our substitute. 
Jesus lived a perfect life that God created all human beings to live. He then offered that perfect life on the cross back to God as a payment for the lives that we have chosen to live instead, as payment for the penalty that we deserve for those lives of sin. God proved that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf by raising him from the dead, and now he holds out to us the promise that everyone who trusts in Jesus will be forgiven and will be welcomed and accepted by God as a member of God's family forever. That can happen for you this morning. That message is the message that has the power to save people from what we deserve. Do you believe that this morning? Or do you still have a hard time believing that and giving yourself to it? Let me end with this illustration and then we'll pass out the elements of communion for those of us who believe. If you're, if you're getting communion, you can actually go and get those elements now and take your stations while I do this. There were two guys, they were both scientists. One was a botanist who studied plants. The other was an astronomer. He studied the stars. And the astronomer was always trying to get his friend, the botanist, to look at the stars with him. And one day, his friend said, yeah, you know, I think I'm ready to do that. Man, the astronomer was so excited. He said to his friend, man, this is the best news ever. Why don't you come over this afternoon? I got a new telescope. I'll let you look at these galaxies with me. Just come by at 4 o'clock. And, and, and his friend said, no, you know what? Don't, don't worry about your new telescope. I don't want to break that. I've got these instruments that I use to look at the plants. I'll just bring those with me. And his friend, the astronomer, looked at him and said, wow, you, you don't get it, do you? Those instruments are fine for looking at plants. But you can't look at the galaxies with that stuff. The, the galaxies are real, but you can't see it with those. You need better instruments. Listen, God is real. You're not going to see him with the weak instruments of your unaided mind. You need better instruments. You need the help of divine revelation if you're going to see God. You cannot see the kingdom of God, Jesus says, unless you're born again. You must bring yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay yourself down in humility to let him operate on this heart that makes you a rebel to God. And let him give you a new heart that will love God more than anything else. And let it begin from there. And watch what he does with your life. How beautiful he does make it in the end. Let's pray together. Father, help us to to come to you, to not, to not be afraid of you anymore, but to let you operate on us, to bring us to the truth, to help us come into the light, not fearing exposure, but finally being grateful for the exposure that allows us to drop our arms of rebellion and to pick up instead faith in Jesus Christ, your son, and the cross that he gives us to carry in this life. We ask that you would do that for every man, every woman, and every child in here this morning. In your timing, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.